Boy, I am feeling my first dose hard right now. Yeah. yeah. Oh, really? I love it. It was fun. I got escorted. I had a military escort from spot to spot within the vaccination <laughs> center because they saw me with my white blind cane and they were like, ma'am, let us help you. <laughs> For the first time when someone's done that, when I've had my cane, they didn't just like touch me without asking. And I think only because of COVID, which was like kind of the best thing in the world. But you could tell that they wanted to touch me and like grab my arm and steer me like so bad. Like they kept just sort of like gesturing like they were going to like jump for my arm and then they'd realize halfway through and catch themselves and be like, no, 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 slightly more left. Like they, they were directing me like I was like precious cargo, precious cargo or like like they were yelling at their friend who was playing like they're trying to teach how to play Mario Kart or something, you know, a little bit more to the left, a little bit, no, 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 no. a little more to the right. It was cute. Welcome to the Deaf Panel. If you'd like to support the show, please become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We do two episodes a week. This is a free one. So if you want access to all of our Monday bonus episodes, the entire back catalog of premium content, then become a patron. The one from Monday is actually really good. It's yeah. a deep dive into Pfizer. Yeah. One of my favorites in a while. Yeah. And so again, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. So today we're going to... Bear with me. Hear us out. We're going to get into NFTs. Later. Later. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. uh, B has... I've been very much sort of intentionally staying on the sidelines of this conversation and B has forced me to out my take on it. So we'll get to that in a bit. I, it's only because you have a good take <laughs> that's that's worth airing. So yeah, stay tuned. Stay tuned for that. Um, you know we like to put ourselves through physical pain here in the show. Artie so. is wearing his ceremonial weighing in robe. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you laugh, but you know that Matt Iglesias has at least like three of those several yeah. judicial robes. <laughs> I bet he has. Like, I identify as a judge. That he likes to wear when he's giving really good opinions. Yeah, you know, I'm, like I'm he sure. puts on his contrarian socks um or days of the week underwear but for like housing policy um but before we get into nfts and talk about that whole situation i'm really excited to get into this this study really quick first and talk a little bit about the vaccine and this this is like pairs really well with our episode on monday become a patron but um So we've been talking a lot about the problems with uh, just sort of declaring that the vaccine rollout means mission accomplished for COVID and COVID's just, you know, going to be over Um, because, you know, there isn't a lot of data about how vaccines are going to uh, confer immunity long term. This is sort of a wait and see process. But beyond that, there won't be until long term has Right. 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 Yeah, exactly. You can't can't know data about um, what, you know, antibody levels and someone look like, you know, 10 months out when it hasn't been 
been 10, 10 months, months a statistically significant amount of people have had the vaccine. Yeah. And that seems like a simple point, but very few news anchors seem to understand that fact. Well, I mean, it makes sense, right? Like if everyone around you is essentially telling you the pandemic, like we're almost done, it's almost over. Mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm. functionally we're at the end. Whereas meanwhile, you know, if we even think about the stuff that we were talking about on Monday with uh, the with um, the Pfizer vaccine and things like that, the people calling for for a waiver to the TRIPS agreement for Mm COVID-19 related stuff, the people calling for, you know, suspending vaccine intellectual property stuff, what they're talking about is even they are framing it within like the intellectual property should be suspended at least for the duration of the pandemic. And when they talk about that, they are saying, and these are, you know, people, public health people from like South Africa and India and Mm -hmm. dozens of other countries, they are saying like four or five years period they're not saying like the 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 american timetable which is like so yeah everyone's gonna have a barbecue for july 4th right (laughs) that like we can't miss that this time right Right. no exactly and i mean the beyond the just like not knowing how long the the immunity will last we also don't know how the immunity will take in people who have different immune systems, right? So when you do drug studies, you usually don't accept people who uh, have a lot of pre-existing conditions into these drug trials because you want to sort of try it on the quote-unquote like average man. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, (laughs) so for example, like it was really unusual for Moderna to have a really wide age cohort in their study because typically people who are like over the age of 55 are left out as well. So because of how COVID was targeting people who were older and more vulnerable, Moderna did include old people, but they didn't have, you know, like cancer patients in their trial or organ transplant patients or autoimmune disease patients. And so as the vaccine is being rolled out to high risk groups, we're starting to get information about how vaccines are working in people who have different immune states. Right. Which is why I think we wanted to take a moment to just talk about at least this one study or this like very sort of early preliminary information that we have from at least one source, because it's been something that we've been watching for for a long time, knowing, for example, that like, you know, as B is mentioning, there are a lot of different states that your immune system can be in. I think that has been like pretty widely, that's at least been pretty widely disseminated as sort of an idea generally when you talk about, Mm -hmm. you know, like, because everyone, including like fucking fascists like Martin Kaldorf or whatever, who, you know, are now just openly vaccine skeptical or something. I love this um, for him. Yeah. Um, but like people like, you know, where he was going uh, the whole time, all, oh, yeah. all, all the way down to like the Great Barrington people like Martin Kaldorf or whatever are basically like, uh, you know, are are communicating this this idea of like people being quote unquote more vulnerable or whatever. And that there are, you know, for example, like older people or people in like phase two or phase one B groups or something like that are, you know, people with compromised immune systems. You can have a compromised immune system from having, from taking like immunosuppressive drugs. That's what like major medications for cancer are for the most part. But yeah, basically, so we've been, so because there are all these different like states of being that your immune system can be in, we've been waiting for sort of any data on Mm -hmm. this because while it's important, yes, to have uh, immune compromised people as a prioritized group because they are going to be especially vulnerable to having the virus virus like replicate inside of them. <laughs> One thing that has not been really well communicated in terms of that vaccine rollout is that we don't have a lot of information yet as to how well 
those antibodies pretty like it, how well and how well the vaccine works in immunocompromised people to produce antibodies and to hold on to them. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, basically all of our knowledge about how the vaccine works in immune compromised people right now is inference. Right. And we're just starting to get this info back. Um, so in a new research letter, uh, which was out on the 15th in JAMA, uh, it was called Immunogenicity of a Single Dose of SARS-CoV-2 Messenger RNA Vaccine in Solid Organ Transplant Recipients. Um, so obviously this is this is a limited study because they they're in the process of analyzing the second dose responses right now and they're still enrolling the study. But this is sort of their first analysis of dose one and it's telling already. So. So they detail findings that show a blunted immune response in certain solid organ transplant patients. And then they extrapolate what this could mean for the wider immune compromised population. And mostly they talk about their concerns with how uh, the messaging is being rolled out right now towards post-vaccination behavior that only seems to consider, you know, quote unquote, normal immune system responses to the vaccine and doesn't even take into account the possibility that someone might have a blunted response to the vaccine. Yeah, it seems seems like this, you know, what what information like this should tell us is that like the, the two rhetorical polls now are just so awful. One of them is apparently like the only two choices are one vaccine skepticism and two irrational exuberance and collapsing the idea of vaccine rollout as like the prime indicator of the end of the virus. And those are absolutely those are absolutely the not not the two options. But like politically speaking, that's sort of where you get, you know, I don't know, I, I, I would hesitate to put numbers on it, but. I think there's sort of like, you know, <laughs> there's like a 60% of the country that's like, yep, vaccines are rolling out. It's over, people. And then yeah. 20% being like, it was never real to begin with and the vaccine is a hoax. And the reality is the vaccine, uh, especially in uh, potentially in populations of immunosuppressed people, it's like this is not going to be enough. Right. right. Or, or even among people that we've talked to, frankly, a, a you know widespread understanding that leads directly into oh the pandemic's almost over that is them just assuming like okay well that's it I can't get COVID anymore right like I can't yeah. possibly you know yeah and I've seen people say that like the day after their vaccine too which it's like yeah no it takes, which is especially not true but right, yeah some, but even like the time. two weeks after it's not you know it's not like it is you know yeah ironclad or something and this data that's coming back from Hopkins is not surprising and it is you know preliminary and i'm and they're going to be updating it once they have more results back again if you are like an immune compromised patient like you should totally enroll in this um but essentially you know the basically the top line question is will immune suppressed people be protected by the vaccine from covid19 at a similar or comparable rate to people without compromised immune systems. And the answer seems to be that some will and some might not be. And that's a very important distinction, which, as we've said, is basically completely lacking from any public messaging from the CDC about the vaccination rollout. So among 436 patients who had never had a positive COVID diagnosis, who received the first dose of either the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, only 17% of those patients 
mounted detectable antibodies. So when you compare that to what they call immunocompetent people, which I really don't like that yeah, word. Wow. It's a, <laughs> yeah. hum, How does it feel to be immune competent, guys? Yeah. yeah, I have to say. Anyways. <laughs> Maybe it's the only kind of competence I have. <laughs> Good to know there's always a baseline of competence right yeah, there. Exactly. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I fucking hate that word. But compared with the rate in immune competent people after the first dose, which was um, in their control group, 100% of patients mounted a detectable antibody response after just one dose. So obviously here, the main issue is that these uh, these doctors who are running the study, most of whom do uh, work directly with transplant patients and they are transplant surgeons are really concerned because there have been calls to do one-dose regimens for everyone as a way to deal with the uh, vaccine supply. And their concern is that what that basically does is put people on certain drugs or in certain immune states in a position of being basically targeted by these reopening plans that say, you know what, everybody can go out and you get vaccinated and you're good to go, A-okay. But without any messaging out there to say, well, actually, some of these patients might not be protected with the same robust antibody response, um, really leaves those people pretty vulnerable to the actions of like state, local governments, employers, like whatever. And it requires their doctor to like specifically seek out the knowledge in order to convey that to the patients. But it's like, as we've seen, like people trying to do ADA accommodations at work for staying home during COVID, like it's been sort of like the flip of the coin, whether or not your employer will listen to your doctor on that point. So, you know, there's real risk here of patients who are taking certain immune suppressants basically being put in a position where the whole world is pretending that everything is fine and they are absolutely not protected at all. Yeah. Which I think is, is it, and it has the potential to decentralize an already very decentralized uh, fight, uh, further decentralize. I mean, th- that's, you know, the whole question we've been asking about, you know, when is, when will the pandemic be over sociologically and politically is, I mean, quite clearly it's going to be, I think the answer to that is already that we've seen is that it's even when it's not epidemiologically over, especially for uh, immunosuppressed people, it's, it'll be over politically before that. Yeah. Um, right. Well, and I mean, think of think of it this way. Take take th- think about just a really simple real world example, right? Okay, so so the other week when the CDC issued its uh, guidance or its suggestion about like what vaccinated people could do, mm-hmm. right? So one of the things that immediately happened, like one of the things that immediately happened following that were there's this pro- proliferation because so much uh, like in the, in this like really tragic way, so much like social reproduction. Uh, of news or what has happened or you know all of these things happens through stuff like instagram story graphics or something right now like immediately after the cdc guidance uh showed up like people were that cd that cdc guidance showed up the you know the guidance is you can vaccinated people could go for example to spend time in like the homes the households of unvaccinated people who've been you know quarantining together or you know isolating together or whatever that's like you know that's what the cdc is was saying and you know if you put that into real and sorry and these instagram graphics were essentially interpreting that as a vaccinated person because the the wording said something like can't a vaccinated person can visit with like multiple households people were 
uh, taking that as like, so you have these like a couple pods of people. You have like little, like literally a graphic of like a little house with people in it and then plus sign another little house with more people in it or whatever. So quote unquote, multiple households gathering with a vaccinated person. Like you can already see how this was, you know, it's ridiculous. (laughs) As though, as though the way that it was being said in the guidance was that like multiple, as long as everyone's isolating, like households can congregate together and there's like a vaccinated person there and that makes it okay according to the CDC. But I digress. That's obviously not what they were saying, actually. Just the household thing Under, is making me think of uh, the the angel of death and Passover. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. sorry I just well. Yes. Let me take. I'll just use that. Let me. You thank you for bringing me a metaphor. I will take that forward and um, base. And if you think about it, so like the, what what I what I mean when I say like if you think about how people are are dealing with this in practice be, because we're not doing um, things like we, you know we don't we're like the United States does not have an NHS. The United States does not have, you know, a actually robust federal level or national like or, you know, what whatever a top level uh, health or public health infrastructure really mm-hmm. uh, of, of the kind that you would need in a situation like this or as we would argue generally speaking you would mm-hmm. need but we're, we're not as actively as we could collecting data on stuff like exactly what this study is saying and it is entirely possible that if one thing that we don't know about this vac- vaccination effort is like how well an immune response will mount in an immune compromised person or whether like for instance like immunosuppressant drugs certain of them may you know help like shed uh, those antibodies mm-hmm. basically may shed COVID antibodies. One of those people could be like, could end up being like the angel of death or something mm-hmm. just right. because like CDC guidance said like they're fully vaccinated. You know, they've, they've waited two weeks after their shot or whatever, based on how the, this is being communicated to people. They would have no mm-hmm. reason to suspect they would, you know, be in danger. Right. Right. And I mean, there are, there are a few like important like caveats to the study, which is like, yes, they're they're just looking at one dose. But again, they are doing further analysis to look at how this develops past two doses. It is right now just looking at solid organ transplant patients who are on like specifically the category of anti-metabolite drugs, which is like cell which I think the generic is um, mycophenolate and imuran, which is azathioprine, which I used to be. I've actually used to be on both of them. Celsept is really cute. It's like a gigantic lavender pill or at least the dose that I had. It was like big purple pill and it absolutely sucked and did not work for me personally. Um, worst year of my of my disease life, actually. Um So, you know, it's just looking at this one drug category and this one category of patients. But again, they are expanding the study to include a lot more other vulnerable categories of people. So if you qualify for this, like you should totally reach out to Johns Hopkins. Maybe we'll put a link to the letter in the episode because I think there's a link to enroll in the study there. But this makes me worry about a couple different things. One is immune compromised people being written off of vaccine priority because right, right. there's yeah. the idea that, oh, it doesn't work. And it's like a waste, which we don't know that for sure. Right. Like exactly. we also don't know that. And for even, sure. And even if it is in a broader population, you know, slightly less effective at mounting uh, immune response in people, that's still, a, you know, increasing the percentage of people who do have an immune response right. to it. So you right. do still want it. Yeah. And they are also doing further study to look at B and T cells to see if 
they're in the same group of patients to see if there is like a long-term humoral immunity, but the antibodies are just gone for some reason because right. of the drugs. Um, our, actually, our technology is to like look at B and T cell responses you would think would be like really robust, but they're actually like not super technologically advanced. So that's that's also coming and like we should expect to hear more on this. But, you know, there's there's also the huge possibility that Research like this stays under-resourced because it doesn't really ideologically fit with what the general population wants to think about COVID right now. And yeah. we never see an update from the CDC. And so, you know, I, I worry about a sort of like soft eugenics where you have that translation of that 100 flu deaths a day to 100 COVID deaths a day, who beco which becomes sort of an acceptable minimum for that population to be made up from people whose immune systems are compromised, which resulted in them having like a blunted protective response from vaccination. But this isn't necessarily like the public messaging, right? So it's like people who think that they're protected at a certain level, but might not actually be protected that robustly. Right, right. Yeah. And, and, and so it's sort of like, I don't know which is worse, like people are already being deprioritized for having pre-existing comorbid conditions. Um, and it just, it, it makes me very, very worried about how we continue to go forward, especially considering the fact that there is this whole conversation about, are we going to need boosters? I've saw some people online on a forum trying to convince their primary care providers to give them a third dose, like under the table as a strategy. But I mean, like what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to my PCP and say, hey, can we do a serology test looking for the spike serology? Because if you look for the other one, like it won't matter. But to do a serology test two weeks after my second dose to just sort of double check that uh, that there's something there, because like I would prefer the reassurance. You know what I mean? I mean, it sounds like that's something that really just should be in the like a care protocol uh, for people who are immunosuppressed and get the second dose. I mean, it's a very easily accessible test right now. I think the majority of the serology tests authorized for emergency use by the CDC right now actually do test for spike or like both of them at once. So, you know, it's just a matter of like providers being told by, you know, I don't know, like maybe an institutional authority body for public health messaging <coughs> like the hmm. CDC. <laughs> Who could that be? <laughs> maybe it's a good idea to do this type of serology screening on your immune suppressed patients because we really don't know right. either way. And it could be useful to know. And this is this is interesting to me because it kind of parallels the conversation that we have had about the advantages that the NHS had with being able to get uh, DNA typing on the on the virus, right? So we knew the UK variant was there because the NHS was actually testing that regularly and they have a centralized system of sharing this data. But in the US, we absolutely do not have that, yeah. right? So yeah. we're at such a loss here for trying to coordinate information about the sort of small exceptions, which we need to find out if they exist or not to what the protection that's conferred from these mRNA vaccines, but we we don't really have like a way of doing that right now. And and I think it really worries me that we're never going to see this messaging adopted at a federal scale. Yeah, right. You know, I think I think what you what you do see and, you know, I want to be really clear from what I said before, obviously, like the people who are like pe people who may. And, you know, I think the the if is really important here because we don't know. Again, this is like a very small study, but it is we're you know talking about it because it is like the first thing of its kind that we have been watching for. And, and, we'll, for, and yeah. We'll, yeah, we'll wait to see like 
what more information we ultimately do um, get on this uh, before what is what we can say is, you know, more definitive. But I think it has, you know, it's been a concern of ours all along, essentially. And it is one of the reasons why it's, um, you know, especially it's one of the reasons why we've spent so much time in the last few weeks, like really, really trying to just process what the fuck is happening in terms of this, Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. you know, political and social construction of the end of COVID because at the end of the day, if you, you know, as we're, have been talking about, like when you unfurl the fucking mission accomplished banner (laughs) before you even know, right. Then what is going to happen except for like some people who may not even know, Mm -hmm. um, they, you know, may not even know they don't have like the additional uh, protection conferred by um, vaccination or may have some but not as much of a immune response and may not these people may not be being like actually communicated to mm-hmm. in a really good way and you know again I'm not I'm not saying it's necessarily true but it is in the same way that I'm trying to be careful I think it is unacceptable that like the Biden administration for example which is rolling out they've made a big thing of for as much as we talked about the campaign to defeat despair or having a huge price tag or whatever within the Trump administration, they've made a big show of like pulling out a $1 billion like uh, vaccine promotion, uh, like ad campaign or whatever, like PR, PR push or whatever. And that's good. That's fine. Like, however, (laughs) casting this as extremely definitive and like the end of COVID and in, you know, March (laughs) telegraphing normality in July yeah. is just it, it's it, it's a recipe for fucking disaster and just like loss of life that will be just ignored ignored right. and i mean it's because it's people who we systematically dehumanize in the eyes of the state it's you the know? deaths pulled from the future exactly just right the just done the fucking democratic party way exactly yeah i, I mean <clears throat> i know but this is this is i i think that there's a uh, uh, just a category error that that I make when I even think casually about it, which is that I, I'm, I'm making this assumption, which is truly a leap of faith and not correct, that somebody somewhere, there's an overriding treatment of this crisis as a public health crisis, first and foremost. And that's just not true. And it's never been true. Uh, the crisis, as ever, has been a a treated as a crisis of uh, uh capitalism and a need to like preserve uh capitalism and the sociological order that supports it uh and Mm -hmm. the and and it's actually at moments like this where the the veil is sort of pulled back and you see like (laughs) oh yeah actually this thing that you would do uh and the way that you would deal with this if this was not merely a if the public health aspect of it weren't just a sort of complexity that was to be managed away in terms of PR uh, <laughs> rather than something that you actually cared about, you wouldn't deal with it this way. Right. And, you know, so now you see that. Yeah. And I, I mean, people have been saying like, well, you know, it's like really foolhardy to raise these potential shortcomings in the vaccine in a public forum before we have complete information on it, because this is going to contribute to vaccine skepticism. And I think it's part of this like larger framework of sort of overblowing the 
influence of vaccine skepticism as a reason to not question any of the recommendations which no, are no, being no. made. But this is the thing like the, that that argument makes a homology between skepticism of the vaccine, which is really at the end of the day tracked skepticism of the existence of the virus or the meaning of the virus itself right and skepticism that the vaccine alone in its rollout alone will be enough those are not the same thing yeah. exactly and and i feel like what what we're at risk of right now is seeing the the CDC basically overpromise and underdeliver when it comes to the idea of the vaccination as it's being sold right now. Well, that's why that's like that's why I was saying essentially that to what you're saying be basically the idea that it's like not good to point out that there are vulnerable populations that we do need to know more about about the vaccine before we declare fucking unilateral victory against COVID-19 or whatever. That is something that is, I think, an important like public conversation to mm-hmm. have as we wait for, as we like wait for more information. And I think if it were actually talked about, frankly, uh, in public do- discourse or whatever, that would actually probably instill more confidence mm-hmm. in a way exactly. because it is like not just pa- like patronizing, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I mean, the, whereas, the opposite, do, right. Whereas the opposite. Sorry, that's where I was getting at. Which is, whereas the opposite, which is just like, no, 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 no this is the silver bullet. Like that, that I think is more damaging, especially if in the future it does turn out that, you know, we need modified or an extra booster or something for immunosuppressed people mm-hmm. to make sure that they mount a good, sufficient immune response. Right. Like, espe- like, especially if then you have to change your I mean, you saw what happened with the, with the like mask shit. Right. The fir- mm-hmm. In the first situation at the very beginning, like <laughs> it was very obvious, like we have a respiratory at some level virus, respiratory yeah. like b- virus pandemic it like it's SARS 2 like mm-hmm. right it's very obvious like people should probably wear masks right mm-hmm. that is w- like one of the prophylactic me- measures that you take when a disease is going around is like you wear a mask right and yet like the I- the idea that like oh we sort of patronizingly have to wait at mm-hmm. the very beginning of the pandemic to like declare that people should mask up so that there isn't a run on masks or something like the damage that that does that then you know everyone under the political spectrum can then go and like cast doubt uh including your like nate silvers and matt iglesias as they were doing all over the fucking winter as thousands of people were dying Mm -hmm. like casting doubt on the whole on the you know ideas and intentions behind the mask recommendation right the masking recommendation right like These things do have real consequences when you take Mm -hmm. this fucking paternalistic uh, approach. Right. Well, I guess I guess another way of saying is that like the opposite of vaccine skepticism is not which is which is currently currently like the 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 leading sort of view uh, vaccine reductionism. Right. right? There's there's a, a different way of seeing things. You don't have to just say. Yeah, this is the this is the one silver bullet. That's a reductionist view of a virus or of yeah. a pandemic. Right. Totally. And yeah, and lest it be unclear in any way, everyone should like everyone should get the vaccine. We talked yes. our entire patron episode is about how we should just fucking seize public ownership of like the Pfizer vaccine and all of the other vaccines and therapies. Basically. We are a pro-vaccine and, podcast. We are just yes. not a vaccine reductionist podcast. I don't know. Maybe we should reconsider some of our rules governing how we do medical studies and trials and maybe consider 
why we prioritize the sort of average man as our study participant instead of trying to, you know, study how things work in the populations that need it the most. I don't know. Just an idea. You know what I mean? Crazy thought. I mean, that's why I say soft eugenics, because it's like, you know, between the inequities in the way that the vaccine is being rolled out and the possibility that the vaccine might give blunted protection to certain groups with compromised or suppressed immune systems, like... I mean, that's a soft eugenics state program right there, just in the CDC's refusal to acknowledge that fact. And what better way to undermine people's trust in public institutions and this fantastic biotechnology of mRNA, which is being used for the first time, than by downplaying the reality of what's actually going on? Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe this is a good moment for us to transition into our second topic. Sure. I guess we kind of have to do for this episode, we have to be like, this podcast is not medical advice, nor is it investment advice with the pairing of these two <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, we yeah. did put a disclaimer at the beginning. This podcast does not constitute, <laughs> nor does it contain medical advice, nor financial advice. If you should seek medical advice, consult a doctor. If you should seek financial advice, consult Artie Veerkant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, we're, yeah, I guess this is a big, we're going to do a big switching gears then, huh? Yep. Yeah. So you may have heard about a JPEG selling for like $69 million at Christie's this past week. I was very angry to week. hear about this. <laughs> By and someone I named People. did not give a shit. But yes. yeah. <laughs> um, and so uh, this has been all over the news. And what actually sold is something called an NFT, which is what we're going to talk about for the rest of the episode today. <laughs> I was yeah. also angry that I had to learn about. <laughs> <laughs> Again, apologies. But we do like pain here. <laughs> So um, I guess to just start with the real basics, because I don't think I think, you know, not necessarily everyone who's listening right now knows what an NFT is. Yeah, I feel like I I keep experiencing this as like, okay, well, now we open a new chapter in the dumb annals of late stage capitalism. And here here again, I've been waiting for what the next speculative bubble was going to be. Was it going to be like Space Jam 2? Was it going to be, uh, you know, uh, was it going to be the, uh, I don't know, like a Matthew McConaughey commercial or like a new chocolate bar of some kind? No, no, no. It's now um, getting just in that it's uh, a uh, a way of certifying um, uh, digital images. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, so now <laughs> this, this 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 new asset bubble is just uh, the Getty Foundation, <laughs> like Getty Images. I mean, well, not, it's funny you say that. Not su- not super far off, I guess. Uh, the I mean, just to well, be fair good. though, so like. Um, <laughs> How, how to put it well so i i think let, let's ground this in like you know we can talk about the sort of recent craze or or whatever the like you know the the kind mania. of like well, yeah the the mania the frenzy o- over it or whatever but i but i do think i i think one thing that has been missing from a lot of like what people talk about when they talk about nfts is like actually totally divorcing it from the the like mania stuff d- divorcing it from i don't know this like sudden leap in valuation which you know again major we, market hype yeah we can like we can talk about but um i think in a lot of ways the craze is kind of a distraction and what because what they what these things are is actually very interesting it's just that like from a sort of structural or like philosophical perspective i think that there's like a really important conversation to have mm-hmm. about these new digital assets um new-ish digital assets um 
I just want to preface this by saying, you know, I want to be clear. I'm not going to like, I don't think we should like cast dispersions on anyone who might be listening to this or whatever, or anyone who is like uh, artists selling NFTs or something like that. You know, it is a shame that like most people can't survive making art. I get the argument that people are just like artists just got to eat or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, fine, obviously. Um, the thing is, and you know, there's like, there's a version, for example, of the meme, you know, that meme that's like, you are critical of capitalism and yet you participate in society How curious <laughs> yes. or whatever. Um, there's a version of that for like the NFT discourse for like this digital asset discourse that is, you know, what, like one person being like, NFTs are bad because they don't completely destroy capitalism in their entirety. And the other person being like, I just want slightly marginal, better like uh be- like better survivability for artists to get paid or something and it's like fine whatever fine yeah like i get the i mean like look we have a patreon like i'm not gonna throw rocks from within glass houses necessarily right. like of i get course. the utility of like using it or whatever and it, it is separate from the the bubble stuff because like you know there like there are, there's some genuine artwork that sells or whatever as nfts but for the most part it's kind of like stuff that you find you would find on like a graphic design website in like the year 2006 or something i mean like the the one that like made headlines is by a guy who has like two million instagram followers and and posts like an image a day and it's very much like what is selling is just sort of reproducing like attention economies that already exist no i mean because i i experienced this first again as a conversation about this speculative bubble and then you know right. i was sort of thinking about it really in relationship to the uh the dutch tulip mania of the 1630s <laughs> also an asset bubble that was directly preceded by a plague uh that <laughs> really? that some uh, economic yeah. historians argue the plague uh the bubonic plague in the 1630s was one of the reasons not that the that tulips became highly valued initially but that that really intense period of uh tulip uh uh uh, sort of speculative bubble emerges in the 1630s in in Holland because uh <laughs> the traders sort of the emerging burger class uh, just becomes incredibly uh, incensed with the desire to like make money very quickly before many of their friends and they possibly die. <laughs> um, and uh, so, so I, I sort of experienced it in that. But you know what's funny is I just then I just started reading about tulips, uh, which we can talk about later. <laughs> but it's funny because by thinking about it that way, I already. I was just making the the analogy in my head is like, oh, well, okay, NFTs, well, they're just tulips. But then it just occurred to me, I was like, well, yeah, but what are these things? Because in a way, (laughs) it's different from the tulip um, uh, craze, not because there isn't. You know, not because, as James Surwicky has has tried to point out, like, no, 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 don't you understand? Initially, the difference with uh, the tulip craze is that was really about collector's items uh initially and that like it was french sailors trying to bring these tulips home to their wives um and that and that this is different because it was just speculative from the beginning but it doesn't really matter where it begins it's both of them become speculative bubbles in the end but then i thought like no no, no this is different in the sense that nfts are not just like a sort of commodity like any other it is a different way of I mean, there's a technological innovation that which like many technological innovations, once it happens, the question about what the fuck is this and exactly what is this doing to the broader economy? uh, Just that question gets depressed and we treat this as like 
you know, a commodity like any other. Right. So at a very, wait, so like at a very basic level, NFTs or quote unquote non-fungible tokens mm-hmm. are a method of, they're, they're a, you know, to, I, I want to make this like, a, just to be very clear, like I want to make this really accessible because I think a lot of the ways that people explain this are, you know, tied up in like techno babble often. So I want to yeah, make totally. this, try to make this yes. like as extremely, expo- like it. extremely accessible to like lay people as possible or to like, you know, people who are, who are, you know, not to me. like who, yeah, to sure. To Phil, to people who are not like ext- on the extreme technological cutting edge or whatever. So at a very basic level, NFTs are this like technological solution for adding uh, sort of authorship and mostly ownership, like right. to ascribing uh, ownership to specific digital objects. Mm-hmm. The so w- when I say that, uh, what I what I mean is like you know if you think about it, um, one of the things that I love about the internet, for example, is you know you put up a like JPEG or whatever image uh, video or something online. Um, people can for the most like, although obviously I know that we live very much in a era of like authentication stuff and like passwords for streaming websites and all this bullshit or whatever. Verified accounts even. Yeah. You can like digital objects are inherently like copyable, piratable, you know, whatever. And if you have just like, you know, kind of a errant like JPEG floating around or whatever, whoever really owns that doesn't totally matter. I mean, And when I say that, I mean, like, in terms of how it is just distributed throughout the Internet, in terms of, like, how there can be, like, infinite copies or whatever of a JPEG, just like Mm -hmm. there can be infinite copies of, like, a string of text or something like that. Um, And that, you know, that is something that to me, as I know a lot of people who are listeners to this show don't necessarily know this, but, like, as my uh, my sort of, like, other life, my alter (laughs) ego is as an artist, like, to me, as an artist who, like, works in this realm is, like, really is very interesting and something that I've sort of like done a lot of work about and sort of leaning into. So yeah, you can just like JPEGs, et cetera, strings of text are like infinitely reproducible. And you know, what, what we're talking about NFTs doesn't change that. Right. What it, right. What is changed or what is uh, not even changed, what is added basically, what these are is basically NFTs are these like tokens. If you think about it, if you're if you're like an artist, for example, you can think of it as a like certificate of authenticity. Mm-hmm. If you, I mean, I think that's a broadly understood or concept. Think of, yeah, or yeah, like something like a certificate of authenticity or like a land deed Getting something or something appraised, like that. Yeah. You know, like um, an insurance appraisal of a piece of jewelry. Right. So basically, what NFTs are. F- fundamentally is so while people have talked about them as like certifications of like the ownership of a particular digital asset so for instance like a jpeg which while infinitely reproducible could be you know created as an nft meaning that it is then ownable which essentially means that like there is another object created outside of that essentially which is the the quote-unquote nft which points to that Mm -hmm. infinitely reproducible jpeg that infinitely reproducible digital object um but is like a certificate essentially of ownership of that object which um lives on a blockchain as in uh distributed fully distributed ledger essentially Mm -hmm. where like the record of who owns you know who owns or who has what digital asset what token uh is like massively distributed among a group of people which like you know proponents say essentially this gives them some sort of like 
extra state autonomy, which mm-hmm. I, I think is a bit uh, idealistic. But like, you know, proponents of this are like very keen on uh, things that like, you know, sidestep like regulation, the state, uh, like transaction fees, et cetera. Although still like transaction fees are paid to like other entities, a- yeah. other like, you know, uh, crypto platform entities as opposed to being played, paid to like a regulatory agency or to a bank or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, the, the principle is still the idea that there's some sort of like um, that both you can have this sort of token that shows you, in fact, own this digital object it introduces sort of a sort of a scarcity to the ownership of these digital objects like yeah. the idea that even if it is reproduced elsewhere like you own it um it's like trying to like to me it feels like forcing scarcity on something that's not designed to be scarce yeah although it is like it is a bit more complicated than that because it doesn't there's a funny there's a so there's a funny divide here which i don't think is actually captured in a lot of the the sort of like hype over this which is that like when you sell let's say you sell an image a jpeg right as an nft yeah that jpeg is not contained inside of the thing you bought like the nft the the token that you bought that is like very much the certificate Mm -hmm. and it points somewhere mm-hmm. um so for example like so it, it depends like there are solutions to make this like more a bit more like permanent or to like make it so you can kind of like still transfer the ownership over and then the new owner like hosts it or whatever but you could as people have done you know when when like jack dorsey sold his like first tweet or whatever oh, yeah right? that's <laughs> like or when people sell yeah, when people or when people like sell um, sell tweets, for example, often they are pointing to just like a, a website link, basically, right. which the nature of those are is ephemeral, changeable. Right. Yeah, <laughs> we've all experienced an image being pulled down or wh- or whatever, something like that. Um, that's sort of like that's sort of a low level thing. Like um, you know, most people like most of these things are. Uh, hosted in a different way through this through like for instance this format called the interplanetary file system which is more like a think of it like a if servers are like this individual thing in an individual location or whatever think of it more like BitTorrent or something where there are a bunch of different computers who are like hosting Mm. stuff and it's kind of like all around yeah yeah so it's like a little bit less it's like a lot it's a, a lot less kind of like uh, immediately ephemeral than something that only li- lives on like one corporate server somewhere. Right. But still it's, you know, there's, it's so there's still sort of like flexibility. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's so interesting because I obviously like there's been a lot of discussion of like the environmental impact of the blockchain and there's a lot of back and forth on that. And, um, you know, but like what it does remind me of so much is stuff like, uh, I don't know, like SolidWit where you're yeah. basically selling a uh, sheet of instructions on how to make a pencil drawing on a wall. Yeah. And the collectors are essentially buying the right to reproduce it and and own it and share it. But these are publicly available instructions. So it kind of creates like two classes of property ownership when it relates to the image. You have people who can recreate it themselves because they're fans uh, or people who can um, make their own copies of the, you know, downloading the copies of the images that are being sold with the NFT token. But then there's this sort of second class of ownership, which isn't just possession, but it's this sort of like public record of ownership, like bragging rights or something. Yeah, which is where I think it kind of is antithetical to the 
sort of promise and possibility of digital objects, you know, like what I, what I kind of find like both interesting and also just sort of like whatever about <laughs> NFTs is like, this is very much, this is extremely not like a couple things, I guess. One is the, the technological implementation of this. Yes. Is, is novel right. for, for sure. Novel in, you know, the last decade. Um, the idea though is, you know, extremely old. I mean, if you look at like, you're, you know, you're mentioning Saul Witt, I think like conceptual art is a really good example. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually conceptual art is a perfect example specifically because, uh, of a couple things. One is that like, one is that yes, conceptual art, for example, with whether it's like a Saul DeWitt wall drawing or something that is a, a performance or like a single sentence, like written or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, or I don't know, like if uh, like a like a Hannah Darbovin or like a, a invisible work by like Robert Ver- Robert Berry or mm-hmm. something like that. For for the most part, the like sort of you know, authenticity, the like asset value, if you will, of all of those things is primarily in a external object is in like a a certificate of authenticity or in like a sale contract or something Mm -hmm. like that. You know, this is actually in a lot of ways, this is like a very old idea. And then like the, the other reason basically that like concept, like conceptual art is a really good parallel is because actually, despite the fact that I know that I have in the, in the past, I think played into a bit of this myth making, uh, too, like the, the legacy of conceptual <laughs> art, which is often understood as like sort of arriving, always already rejecting, rejecting commodification and rejecting like right. being able to be purchased or whatever was also kind of like from its inception, at least among some of its proponents like very much a play of creating a very different sort of artwork commodity. Right. Basically, um, that wasn't kind of like bound to like the very, the traditional norms of um, painting and sculpture, I think. And you see like the way that, the way that like conceptual art was first received at the very beginning, at mm-hmm. the very outset actually speaks um, to that really well. You have, uh, I pulled this like quote for this actually, which I think I'm just going to, I'm going to uh, read this and I want you to just, imagine like this this to me sounds like it could have easily uh been said by i don't know like elon musk or something of <laughs> nfts um but um so this is a statement from 1969 at the opening of the famous um exhibition when attitudes become form uh. that uh <laughs> this is a statement by the then president of Philip Morris. Excellent. Quote, (laughs) we at Philip Morris feel it is appropriate that we participate in bringing these works to the attention of the public for there is a key element in this quote, new art, which has its counterpart in the business world. That element is innovation without which it would be impossible for progress to be made in any segment (laughs) of society. Just as the artist endeavors to improve his interpretation, his <laughs> and conceptions through innovation, the commercial entity strives to improve its end product or service through experimentation with new methods and materials. Our constant search for a new and better way in which to perform and produce is akin to the questionings of the artists whose works are represented here. Oh, Just as we are seeking the performance <laughs> of, a, of a highly efficient nicotine delivery vehicle, the artist <laughs> seeks to find a way to provide a vehicle that efficiently delivers critique to the immune, to the, uh, to the <laughs> limbic system. Absolutely. 
Um, <laughs> that quote is so good. But I think, you know, I, the, the, the reason I say this again, in a similar way, I think that like Philip Morris there can see the, the ties to like, you know, wanting, wanting to like, uh, suggest by association that their, uh, that their firm is like tied to like American 20th century, like progress and right. uh, the cutting edge or whatever. I think it's very telling that, uh, you know, <laughs> De- a few decades after the inception of this extreme wealth transfer to, uh, you know, to like Silicon Valley people, mm-hmm. um, they are getting really into this sort of like reactionary, very like uh, hyper capitalist, even as much as it has this kind of like, uh, you know, sheen of being anti statist or whatever. Um uh, like manner of collecting or like type of, you know, thing that they are supporting, you know, like it, it, it makes sense that they're, you know, like spending money on these like assets in this way. I, I mean, I think the f- thing to me that I think is kind of like missed in a lot of the like uh, idealist framings of like what the blockchain could do for like for redistributing wealth within the art world, like kind of forgets the fact that a lot of the same hierarchies are actually reproduced in these like digital markets as well. So like a lot of the sites that have popped up to facilitate artists selling NFTs, like they are kind of misleading. They show like, you know, almost like a leaderboard that has like, okay, you know, these are all these people that are making money. It it feels a little bit like a predatory pyramid scheme in a way, (laughs) just as it's like currently rolling out. And like, I, I think like so many conversations like don't even come close to like considering like how how this like conceptually engages with like property relations and how this purports to be some sort of revolutionary overhaul of ownership but it's it's like just reproducing the same hierarchies and the same you know sort of artificial scarcity that the art world loves you know what i mean well it's just i mean in terms of the like uh, pretending that you're avoiding any sort of state power it just sort of reminds me of like the heyday of napster actually like when you were like <laughs> yeah i mean you can do whatever you want because it's the internet and yeah total i mean that was great like things especially in recent decades it's been through stuff like technology platforms or whatever things can manifest themselves very much as the wild west but at, you know at the end of the day if there's some sort of I mean, let me just like put it, put it this way. If somehow, you know, all of the, if someone tried to do like a, uh, a sale of an NFT that included like the complete, you know, intellectual property information for like the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines <laughs> or something, you can bet that state power would like crush down right. on that person immediately, you know? And like <laughs> in a similar way, like no, nothing like, the, I mean, that that's kind of, I, I guess that's like kind of my point. It's like the, I, it's like both, it's interesting and important to like imagine sort of like a different conception of doing things, uh, especially because property relations are so fucked and wealth inequality is like so severe. That being said, so much of this platform basically exists, you know, specifically to replicate the same type, like to replicate the type of intellectual property and property full stop protections that to to like automate their inclusion into digital objects mm-hmm. if that makes sense um though you know obviously like i know i know that there are some like caveats to that like for for example like the fact that it ex- the fact that nfts point to an external thing right the fact that basically like they do point to like either a url or in the in the case of ipfs uh, uh content id i'm saying that not for like general listenership but for like the nerds who will come at me but like 
they they I know it like because it but because it points to you know an external object outside of that authenticity token. You know, some people have said, for example, that you know maybe that would mean that. Uh, actually over time it would be kind of like the more copies that exist of this thing the more copies that like people have that they're hosting in the case of a meme or something like that uh, for example or or anything not just a meme but that's an easy example um, that like the more copies that exist of this thing could actually you know in, uh, ultimately like mean that the that an nft of ownership of that is actually more valuable which is sort of like it's an inversion of the current of like that is specifically uh, invert that would be an inversion of the sort of like property asset scarcity or a like relationship or whatever that uh, individual objects or like works of art, for example, are often premised on. But mm-hmm. that's also but at the end of the day, you are still it, it is still a mechanism for conferring property ownership. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I feel like so often you kind of have this like the best case version of what it could be is used to justify its worst case implementation when it comes to this stuff. Because it's like, I think I like worry that like this is really just a new way for like some people to own stuff that other people explicitly cannot despite the fact that like it might be visual, visually like really visible. And it, it just reminds me of like how we use like luxury fashion to like enforce and code class boundaries immediately. You know what I mean? Like the idea of owning and owning a meme that is like a really popular meme is such a depressing bragging right to have. You know what I mean? It's like absolutely nihilistically a bummer to be like, I own the butterfly meme that is everywhere. That's right. mine. Like, and that to me is kind of a little bit. Irrespective of the fact that there is like a company that produced the like, the animation cell that <laughs> it, that is that owns you know, that, but yeah, it reminds me of that that episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where Richard Lewis keeps saying that he's the guy who invented the the phrase "the blank from hell," like the, the birthday <laughs> from hell. Like, it's just like he's like Larry's like he's not you, you didn't you didn't invent that. It's just Richard Lewis is just you know insisting that he's the one who created it. Yeah. Well, and you know it like. It's hard, like, right? It's uh, And this, like, this is the thing that kind of, like, makes it hard. Because it is, on one hand, it is really interesting in, like, a sort of armchair way, for me, at least, to sort of watch this unfold, like, you know, uh, to watch this unfold in terms of, like, people, but in terms of both, yes, this sort of, like, what appears to be this, like, speculative rush or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I, would, I would venture to guess uh, some of it by, like, people who don't necessarily totally understand some of the other aspects that i was like talking about in terms of like well it's not just the thing it's like the certificate it points somewhere else and also it's not like you know you you get it and it's not you know get you're you're not exclusively kind of like getting that to you although it's not like removing it from the internet by owning it the concern i mean the concern that i would have is that over time the uh the platforms evolve to make it very much that uh right to make it very much like more of a more of a situation where you have to kind of like buy this token to even like get access to right like the the like hash or something that unlocks the digital object and that 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 would ultimately be like you know like you can very easily see that becoming like the kind of thing uh that like you can very easily see a platform using that as the way of like purchasing i don't know like as an alternative to like what we do right now with like movie 
down uh-huh. like movie downloads when you buy a movie uh digitally or something or you buy a video game digitally uh, or something like that um and so you know i i know that already so much of that like property aspect of digital objects digital goods or whatever have been has has migrated already um but it is just like the 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 premise of potentially actually having you know eventually in in through this format like additional sort of control mechanisms basically to make it even like more difficult for example to pirate something um is like (sighs) absolutely depressing yeah and then uh, and then sort of the other thing is like again you know i just i just i i I don't want to let this completely go as just an aside but I, i again i do think that like the you know comparison to how so many of these how so much of this ownership structure uh, structure was already like set up through stuff like conceptual art and Mm -hmm. like certificates of authenticity for like very ephemeral immaterial things i just i mean i guess i want to point out that there are there are like since like so much of that sort of like philosophical discourse and like and movement happened functionally in the 20th century like there are a lot more interesting ways for stuff like this to happen and ones that like don't use up like a bunch of electricity too i mean if you want to talk about like the history of like digital objects being sold as art um i mean do you guys know about the um uh like mendy and keith obadike's blackness for sale no piece so like there was so in 2001 there was a piece um by this uh artist duo called mendy and keith obadike um, who basically who put their blackness up on eBay for sale? Um, you know, this is even more ephemeral than a fucking dumb cat gif, obviously. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but uh, they they put this up. They like you know sold this idea at auction, essentially with like a bunch of you know uh, specific like a list of benefits and warnings, like uh, you know benefit like one this uh, this blackness may be used for creating black art essentially um, and then I mean the list of warnings is more interesting because the the benefits are like here's all the here's all the like um, stuff that you can that you can like do with your newfound blackness or whatever uh, from purchasing it and the warnings are one the seller does not recommend that this blackness be used during legal proceedings of any sort two right. the seller does not recommend that this blackness be used while seeking employment three the seller does not recommend that this blackness be used in the process of making or selling serious art like there's you know there's this like whole lineage of this that i think of like you know the the sort of like you know playful inversions of like say like sale of ephemeral or digital or whatever objects that i think gets glossed over a lot in this uh in this conversation that you know again like i'm not i I don't even want to like compare these things like the piece i'm talking that i just talked about there is categorically more interesting than any nft to me but but i don't know like also if you're gonna like i guess i just want to say too like if you if if you've been thinking about uh, making an NFT or whatever, especially if you're if you're an artist, you know, I would suggest like there are much more interesting ways to deal with like artwork as commodity form at this point or like mm-hmm. digital object as commodity form. And one of them actually is like take a page from like the artist Cameron Roland, for example, who just like categorically for the most part does not actually sell his work, but leases it to collectors yeah. and i this has been fascinating to talk about and, and it's actually funny because when you talk about people 
doing this to remove things from the market. That's actually exactly what Gucci has just started doing, where they're selling limited edition AR sneakers that don't exist in real life, but that you can trade with people. So you can basically buy like a filter that becomes exclusive to you or you can put digital shoes on your feet with your cell phone, but no one else would be able to do it unless you like traded with them. And so they're creating a sort of like internal digital hype market, which is like people have been comparing it to like how they're like brand partnerships with video games where like, like I think like Louis Vuitton did something with like Age of Empires and there were like skins that you could get. And I, I feel like so much of like the hype and the bubble and the speculation right now, like as you're saying already, nobody's like commodifying anything necessarily interesting that like challenges these relationships of property. It's like uh, gifts of like a president trump covered in graffiti in a park and like a spaceman with like well i mean that's the top level stuff there is like there's like you know you can it it doesn't it doesn't just have to be images and stuff like i don't want to give that impression because like i mentioned before you can like sell tweets or whatever like there are certainly like examples of you know people like people doing stuff that seems like clearly it's just kind of like a for for me, the most interesting use of this would be like something that ultimately is just like a joke about property or whatever. Or like right. I yeah. think it's actually quite interesting that like people have been like stealing images or tweets from other people and <laughs> oh, selling them as that. NFTs. Yeah. Like that's that's like that gets I think to some of the like fundamental absurdity here. Like obviously that does nothing for the the demands that I think some of its most vocal defenders have, which is that just like artists should be paid or be able to live in society. But that is imbricated entirely in all of the other shit with the political economy and capitalism that we talk about, like mm-hmm. on the show the entire time. So it is like, you know, like I, I agree, no one should struggle to, you know, struggle to live at all under any circumstances. And people should be able to like, yeah, like, I don't know, be artists and like do whatever. But <laughs> you know i like i i Big think butt. that say, saying that like nf the nfts are are like going to be the savior of yeah uh, or of the, artists that has like to happen in this stretch. form yeah you know yeah, yeah, exactly. that's you know i th- th- this is going to be like the vehicle for that other thing i mean it's, this is like to, to, you know it's a thing that happens a lot it seems which is just that like solutions are developed and then they begin to chase the problem uh and the solution right you know is is then pitched as as the solution to to everything but i can't help but but feel like uh a little bit like charles mckay <laughs> who writes that that book in in 1841 um which has one of the best book titles ever which is, is this about the dutch tulip situation well this is about this is just about the ge- more general phenomena which is mem- memories of extraordinary popular delusions is the name <laughs> of the book and he lists he lists them um and there's a bunch of them you know there's uh the importation of swedish iron the making of muslin uh fairly fairly concrete things for trading in hair but my favorite and the one that feels most timeless i guess is for quote carrying on an undertaking of great advantage but nobody to know what it is uh, <laughs> i love it wait what is the what are can you go can you expand on that uh like, that, that's is, all it's just it's a list of bubbles <laughs> it's just like okay. number 17 for carrying on an undertaking of great advantage but so nobody's know what it is so he doesn't specify <laughs> no like what he's no. talking about okay well that's pretty I mean, good yeah i mean one thing i was thinking about 
this whole time was like how you could take this and use like the idea of like the blockchain to make like a very, very awful, even worse version of like electronic medical record software. You know, the way Epic is like, could you imagine if your your prescription had to like have a yeah. token to be able to redeem it at I'm Walgreens? I'm not even going to bother googling that because i know that there are startups who are doing oh like blockchain oh, they're like yes. name, i mean whatever like google google like any like anything that has to do especially with data management and they're like blockchain startups for it oh, um God, but yeah true. absolutely i'm imagining I mean, a, a a restatement of the philip morris guy thing but it's now just like the president of cigna like <laughs> <laughs> we at cigna believe <laughs> oh yeah exactly drug denials Ooh. via nft you yeah. get your very own certificate of authentic <laughs> denial to the continu- continuity of your care, right? That'll be great. Then I can, you know, feel like I have ownership over my lack of health care, <laughs> right? Anyways, I think that's a good place to leave it. I, this has been a, a lot of fun. I'm sure this was uh, emotionally painful for you already to have to do. So I appreciate it. And if, uh, if our conversation about NFTs pissed you off, um, you can reach me at Matthew Iglesias at slowboring.com. Um, and, uh, yeah, just tell, tell, tell me, but tell me whatever you, uh, you want to say to me, whatever you want to get off your chest at Matt Iglesias at, at slowboring.com. Um, leave, leave B and fill out of this. This is a, they, they made this me is a talk Matt about problem. this. <laughs> Yeah, this <laughs> so. is Matthew's problem right now. Exactly. Exactly. Well, listeners, thank you for listening. And please consider becoming a patron. Patreon.com slash death panel pod. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. All right. Bye. Yeah.